Hi there, I'm Phil St. Romain, and I'm going to share with you my book review of Adi Ashanti's Resurrecting Jesus. But first, let me say that I myself am an author of books on Christian prayer, spirituality, especially contemplative prayer. I've written books on Kundalini process, and I understand that process as well. I've made retreats on Zen, and I'm very comfortable in interreligious dialogue. There were some things that bothered me about this book, however, and I'm going to share that with you. I'll also tell you that I've worked at Catholic retreat centers for the last 33 years. I'm a spiritual director, and I lead retreats on the topics that I've mentioned earlier. So without further ado, let me just get into this book review, which I will read. It's posted on the internet as well through my website, shalomplace.com. It's an Amazon Kindle ebook, and it's also available in EPUB format through Apple iBookstore and other different EPUB formats. So let's get into it. Adyashanti is a name unknown to most Christians, even to those interested in contemplative spirituality. He was born in 1962 and named Stephen Gray, renaming himself Adyashanti, which is Sanskrit for primordial peace, around 1986, after having experienced a Zen awakening and subsequently beginning to teach a small group of students. His influence has grown through the years, including numerous CDs, DVDs, retreats, and now a YouTube channel that streams a number of his teachings. I was relatively unfamiliar with Adia's writings and teachings, and Adia is a name that uh, he is affectionately called by those who comment on his YouTubes, and so I'll take the liberty of doing the same. So again, I was relatively unfamiliar with his writings and teachings until recently, when I became involved with a couple of social media groups that were dialoguing about mystical experiences from a variety of perspectives. Several participants fondly referenced teachings by Adia, and I listened to some of his YouTube teachings, enjoying his gentle, friendly approach, his emphasis on love, discernment, present moment awareness, and related topics. He occasionally mentioned Jesus, and of course there were the usual references to humans being divine that one often hears from Easternist teachers, but that was not unexpected. I've learned through the years to either never mind those or to hear them as ways of speaking about divine union. I'm convinced that there are many types of religious experiences and ways of expressing connection with the divine. So it was interesting to me to hear Adyashanti describing his own awakening and unitive experiences. Then I became aware of the book, Resurrecting Jesus. It came up in a social media discussion about Christian mysticism. And the participant who mentioned it stated that he had agreed with Adia's approach to the, quote, Jesus story, as he called it, and that it was best to consider what the New Testament taught about Jesus in a mythical or metaphorical sense. Furthermore, it made sense to him that one of the most important takeaways is that Jesus revealed that we are all, like him, both human and divine. Other teachers who've been deeply influenced by Adyashanti, put it even more strongly that we are 100% human and 100% divine. I looked up Resurrecting Jesus, which is from Sounds True Publisher 2014, on Amazon.com and saw that it had over 700 reviews with a 4.7 out of 5 rating. Many of the fives noted that what he taught was what they believed Christianity should be teaching instead of its tired old doctrines on theology and morality. Well, okay, but I wasn't sure that Adia's prescription was the best way forward, so I bought the book to learn exactly what he had in mind. And I found it a muddle, with sparkling and beautiful insights in places, interesting reflections in others, but also an abundance of misinformation and false teaching concerning the message and meaning of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Well, some might say he's only sharing his opinion. What's wrong with that? 
Absolutely nothing, of course. Only when you're widely regarded as an enlightened spiritual master, people are more likely to consider your teaching on even topics related to other religions as enlightened spiritual analyses. So in this book review, I will share my thoughts about resurrecting Jesus, especially in areas that I consider to be in direct conflict with Christian teaching, and how an alternative Christian perspective can be understood. Let's begin by considering what Adyashanti shares about his Christian awakening, we'll call it. <clears throat> As in all of his books and audio messages, Adi is general, generous in sharing of his journey to Jesus. He describes how his Zen practice left him feeling somewhat dry, so he began reading the Christian mystical literature and came upon St. Therese Lisieux's autobiography, The Story of a Soul. It's a late 19th century work. And he quotes, I found myself quite literally falling in love with this saint. And when I say I fell in love with her, I mean, I really fell in love, like when you get a crush in high school. It's on page seven. Her love of God awakened a heart opening in him that he'd been missing in Zen. It seems that Adya didn't know much about Christianity prior to his reading of St. Therese and the Mystics. So he began to read more Christian literature, especially the mystics. The spiritual sensitivity he developed through his Zen practice also enabled him to discern a difference in the transmission of divine presence coming through Christianity. I quote him from page 12. In Europe, all you have to do is walk through the doors of those old churches, and you immediately felt a direct transmission, very different from the transmission of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or any religion. Experientially, then, he knows something good and beautiful is made available to the human race through the Christian religion. Quoting him here from page 12, When we open to this Christ presence, it can evoke an inner sense of vitality and a boundless love. The next step, you might think, would be to actually begin in earnest a search for a church community to connect with, then religious instruction, Bible study, and all the sorts of disciplines countless Christian converts have done through the centuries. <clears throat> that didn't happen. What he describes next in the book is his admiration for the ritual of the Catholic Mass and what he thinks it's supposed to be. He attended one, but didn't like the homily on abortion, and that was that. Quoting him from page 14, that was the moment I realized, okay, I guess the Christian path isn't going to be my chosen path. I wanted something really deep, and I could find it in the ancient mystics, but I couldn't find it in a living modern church. My response is, well, he didn't try very hard, did he? There were other Catholic parishes, the Orthodox liturgy, and numerous Protestant traditions that might have resonated. Additionally, religious communities of men and women, including monastics, often welcome others to join them at Mass, as do Catholic retreat centers. Adia's church for a Christian community has to go down as one of the most pathetic I've ever read about, and I cannot help but wonder how his sharing about this has influenced other readers drawn to Christianity. If such an advanced spiritual teacher finds church affiliations so unacceptable, then why bother? By way of contrast, I'll mention here an encounter I had with the Vedanta monk sometime in the 1990s in Philadelphia, where I was a speaker at a conference on Kundalini issues. I do not recall his name or his monastery, but he shared that he'd come to a sense of the presence of Christ in his practice, and he was going to take five years away from the monastery to experience the Christian pathway as a member of a church. He'd read a few books, but decided that actually becoming a Christian was the only way he could be sure that this was his calling or not. 
Perhaps it could be integrated somehow with his Vedanta practices, but he'd already set those aside and was beginning to pray Christian prayers instead and practice Christian disciplines. He came to me wanting to know if I had any suggestions for him, and I had a few, but I was so impressed by this man's humility that I couldn't even remember what I told him the next day. I wish I could. But now back to Adia. After rejecting any formal affiliation with Christianity, he seems, had, he seems to have turned his attention more completely to Zen, but now with an abiding appreciation for the distinctive communication of love Christ had brought to the world and to him. On now to the mythical Gospels. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who lived during a specific time in history. No serious historian doubts this. Within a few years after his crucifixion by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD, a religious movement begun by Jesus's followers was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. The earliest writings of their beliefs date back to Paul's letters to the Thessalonians around 50 AD, and the four Gospels found in the New Testament were in circulation before the end of the first century, along with other letters by Paul and many other writings. Prior to these writings, there was a robust oral tradition conveying the teachings and deeds of Jesus, with reflection on the meaning of his crucifixion and profession of the belief that he had risen from the dead. All of this is well known and taught widely by scholars who have studied this period of early Christianity. Early Christianity borrowed from Judaism, a process for reflecting on scripture that is still useful today. It's sometimes called the senses of scripture, that's S-E-N-S-E-S -E -E of scripture, and engages the oral and written message from several angles. First, a literal and historical sense of scripture. It asks the question, what really happened? This approach makes use of historical, linguistic, cultural, and other studies to try to answer this question. Allegorical, what is the deeper meaning hidden in the text? A third lens or sense is moral. What is the scripture telling us about how to act? Anagogical, where are we headed? What's the ultimate goal? And some approaches make use of other lenses or senses, the theological. What does the message tell us about God? And still others reflect on spiritual or mystical meanings of the scripture. What is it telling us about our connectedness with God? We find all these considerations at work in the writings of Paul and other non-biblical writers in early Christianity. For them, one could not really claim to have a full understanding of Scripture without considering these different approaches. I bring all this up as a point of contrast with Adi Ashanti's approach to Scripture, which he calls mythic. In one short paragraph in his prologue, he basically says it's pointless to try to understand the historical Jesus because scholars are all over the map on this. So he is judging the literal historical aspect of the story of Jesus to be a pointless exercise in futility. He's clearly wrong about that, however. People who had witnessed the deeds and teachings of Jesus were still around when the New Testament was written, and no doubt would have rejected any text that strayed significantly from their memory. Nevertheless, Adia states that he prefers a mythic approach, stating that the story of Jesus will come more alive, quoting him, when we can let go of the obsession with history, what did or didn't happen. In the end, it doesn't really matter whether we read the Bible as historically factual or whether we read the story as mythic and metaphorical. Each of us hopefully looks at the story in our own way in a way that speaks to us." End of the quote. I'm thinking that for the early Christians who were martyred for their faith, historical 
considerations mattered a great deal more than this. What do you think? Basically then, Adyashanti has excused himself from any disciplined engagement with the various senses of scripture, except perhaps the allegorical and spiritual to some extent. He will, however, make use of Christianity's teachings about Jesus found in the Gospels, especially Mark, as a point of departure for telling what he calls the Jesus story. Ignoring the historical, moral, anagogic, and theological meanings and constraints found in those Gospels themselves, Arya seems quite confident that his readers, or those who've heard him lecture on this, will, through the lens of his enlightened and enthusiastic insights, come to a deeper and more authentic understanding of Jesus and his message than anything the Christian church has been teaching. Quoting him, I think the churches of this century need to be revitalized. They need that challenging presence of Jesus that says, it's important that you realize the truth of your being. There are profound consequences to living in darkness. You ask where exactly Jesus taught about the truth of our being? That's a good question. There was no biblical reference to support the quote from Adyashanti either. Actually, there are very, very few in the entire book. But this is a story, not a study. On now to Jesus and the good news. And I'll begin by saying that there's no doubt in my mind that Adyashanti has a deep admiration and respect for Jesus. That's undeniable. This comes through in page after page as he reflects on many of the incidents described in the Gospels. He also rightly notes how Jesus's life and teachings differ significantly from most Eastern teachers, especially in his exercise of prophetic encounter and his full embrace of this life and the body. Without the interpretive constraints of history and theology, however, Anya's allegorical interpretation of Jesus quickly goes off into the weeds. First, let's keep in mind that Jews and Christians, including Jesus, are substance dualists. By this I mean we make a real distinction between God and creatures. God is the source of a creature's existence, and so there is a vital connection between God and creatures. But everything created by God is a new being, not God, an expression of divine creativity. In the case of humans, we are also blessed with conscious intelligence and freedom that enables us to be friends or enemies of God. A real interpersonal relationship becomes possible, and all references to union with God in the Bible and the Christian mystical literature are about that and nothing else. As St. John of the Cross noted in the Ascent to Mount Carmel, in order, then, to understand what is meant by this union whereof we are treating, this union between God and creatures, it must be known that God dwells and is present substantially in every soul, even in that of the greatest sinner in the world. And this kind of union is ever wrought between God and all the creatures, for in it, God is preserving their being. If union of this kind were to fail them, they would at once become annihilated and would cease to be. And so when we speak of union of the soul with God, we speak not of the substantial union, which is continually being wrought, but of the union of transformation of the soul with God, which is not being wrought continually, but only produced, but only when there is produced that likeness that comes from love. This likeness, as St. John calls it, is not an identification at the level of being. He's not talking about ontological union, but a transformation through grace in which the human becomes more and more godlike in character, behavior, and even knowledge to some degree. As St. Paul notes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us a sharing in the mind of Christ himself. The union effected is relational and participative, 
That's our Christian tradition. This is also basic in Christian theology and spirituality that there's simply no excuse for Adyashanti not to know it. He has assured us that he has read the Christian mystics many times, but somehow through his reading, he also picked up a notion that there was a diversity of opinion on such basic matters. Quoting him from page two, different mystics had very different takes on the relationship between Jesus and God or on their relationship with Jesus. Which mystics is he talking about? No references are cited. So one wonders what he's talking about here. But it's typical for Arya that mystics, not the Christian community, knows best about these matters. For Christians, Jesus himself is the good news, the Messiah awaited by the Jews for centuries, and the one who connects us with God in his own spirit. He is unique in all the world of people by possessing the divine nature in a manner that no one has done before or since. This is why Jesus can connect humanity and divinity unlike anyone else. Both are so profoundly and intimately joined in his person that his humanity exists for divinity and vice versa. He is truly human, but in him we find a new humanity, a new Adam, or start for the human race. Christian focus on Jesus and transforming our humanity through the living contact we have with him through faith, prayer, service, community, and sacrament, opens us to the blessing of the Spirit he shares with us. That's what Christianity is about. Adyashanti has no difficulty affirming the full humanity and divinity of Jesus, but he has little use for the rest of what I've written. For him, the good news brought by Jesus is that we can like him, awaken to the fullness of our own divine nature as human beings. Here he is on page 18. Spiritual autonomy is knowing who and what you are, knowing that you are divine being itself, knowing that the essence of you is divinity. You are moving in the world of time and space, appearing as a human being, but nonetheless you are eternal, divine being the timeless breaking through and operating within the world of time. End quote. But surely, you say, he cannot mean this. What about the fact of contingency, that we don't create ourselves, that our existence is received moment by moment from our creator? Reflecting on John 3.16 and God's gift of the world, of his son, Adyashanti writes that, Quote, every verse and episode of the Jesus story is a metaphor for the human experience of awakening. And when you reorient your life to this realization, you understand that you so loved the world. You had so much compassion. You had so much love. You poured yourself into life. And that pouring forth was your birth. Page 50. Every you in that quote is substituted for the word God. We created ourselves. How about that? We're very, very far from the teachings of Jesus and Christianity here. Not even the most generous allowance for allegorical interpretation of the Gospels allows for this degree of misrepresentation of the message and meaning of the Jesus story. Adyashanti Zen does not explain this interpretation. Zen can coexist with any religion. I've known a couple of Catholic priests who were Zen masters in recognized lineages. Neither do the Gospels, writings of Paul, or the Christian mystics stand with Adyashanti. Philosophically and theologically, he is closest to Hinduism and its teachings on the divine Brahma and indwelling Atman being one and the same. While Christianity does indeed teach that we are not separate from the divine and that the divine dwells within, it differs from Hinduism in its view of what creatures are in and in many significant areas, which is why the two have maintained themselves as distinctive religious pathways. Adyashanti is on his own here, 
And so one needs to decide what to think about his teaching. Let's talk about what, what does it mean to be divine? What are we talking about early, anyway? <clears throat> First, why did the early Christians consider Jesus divine? The answer is because he demonstrated behaviors that went far beyond what humans were capable of doing. He calmed storms, for example, multiplied loaves and fish, raised the dead, healed people born blind, and after his crucifixion, he rose from the dead. These and other behaviors give expression to divine attributes. Most historians acknowledge that Jesus was known as a wonder worker. They don't necessarily pronounce on the validity of it, but that was his reputation. And this was one of the reasons why he was followed by huge crowds. Regarding these miraculous signs worked by Jesus, however, Adyashanti steers clear of any historical or theological considerations. As in the rest of the book, he views them mythically, primarily as metaphors for our own psycho-spiritual development. Besides, he tells us he's got little use for miracles. Quoting him, he says, To me, whether the miracles described in the Gospels really happened or not isn't ultimately an important question. Page 108. He then goes to speak of a variety of ordinary miracles we just have to open our eyes to see. Quote, the more we open to the reality of our own divinity, the more we start to perceive life as a miraculous event. Page 109. I'm in full agreement concerning the importance of learning to see and appreciate the wonder of the ordinary, beginning with existence itself but they do not signify the presence of divine nature in humans. So what then does Adyashanti mean when he speaks of, quote, our own divinity? Why does he believe we have a divine nature? It seems that what he refers to as divinity is the sense of a background, continuous, unchanging presence to our lives that we can all experience. Quoting him from page 33. When we look back on the arc of our lives, from the time we were born to the present moment, each of us can touch upon the intuition that there's something about us that is unchanged. Throughout all the ups and downs and changes of life, something is now as it ever was. To touch upon this is to begin to experience eternity within. Okay, again and again in his books and teachings, he refers to this inner witness of our, of our lives as divinity. And it seems that our possession of this awareness implies to him that we must be in possession of a divine nature. I can't find any other reason why Adya believes he's divine or we're divine. There's no divine attributes being manifest in any of this. But what if this background witness consciousness is not even God, but something else, like a non-reflecting aspect of the consciousness of the human spiritual soul? That's the view of many Catholic spiritual writers, writers on epistemology and spirituality, like Bernard Lonergan and Daniel Hilminiak. I myself have made extensive use of their work in my own book, God and I, exploring the connections between God, self, and ego. Here's a quote from Daniel Hominiak in his book, um, let's see, The Human Core of Spirituality, Mind as Psyche and Spirit. It's from page 17. Let's say that I am intensely engaged in the contents of my consciousness, ideas, feelings, sensations, deliberations, etc., after a while, I can become disengaged from this involvement and consult my memory concerning what was going on. When I do so, I discover that I am capable of not only retracting my steps, retracing my steps, not always perfectly, of course, but there is also a sense of presence and connection with the memory, that these considerations not only happened, but that I, 
was the one involved in them. Indeed, the coming common thread running through all manner of experience and deliberations is that I am the one who is present to these operations. To be able to report your experience is to have a sense of self. Non-reflecting consciousness of oneself as the experiencing subject links the flow of ongoing experiences as the experiences of a somebody. So non-reflecting consciousness is the key to the human sense of personal continuity and identity. Said in other terms, it is a spiritual nature that makes human animals persons. By spiritual nature, Helminiac is not referring to God, but to the human spiritual soul, which is the animating and organizational intelligence of the human in individual. A soul is not God, but receives its existence from God moment by moment, and this first arising of its awareness is the background witness, a constant and peaceful experience that we can learn to connect with. Is that what all the fuss is about, divine nature? All of which is to say that Adya's basis for, for affirming a divine nature for human beings is highly debatable. A strong case can be made that the non-reflecting background awareness he considers divinity is really the human spirit, not eternal presence. One is free to disagree with me, Lonergan, Helminiac, and others about this, of course, but to do so, one would need to articulate an anthropology that limits human awareness and experience to a degree that discounts or includes what Helminiac has articulated. Nowhere does Adyashanti do so in this book. His view of human nature is nowhere articulated. Therefore, it is reasonable to disagree with his contention that humans possess a divine nature and that this is not what Jesus taught when he referred to God, nor is it what the early Christians had in mind when they, when they affirmed a divine nature at work in Jesus. All right, Adyashanti's critique of church teaching from the foregoing. It's obvious that Adya is significantly at odds with basic Christian teachings regarding how scripture is interpreted, the mission and message of Jesus, and whether human beings have a divine nature or not. Resurrecting Jesus also projects a negative, negative perspective concerning the Christian religion and church life. Regarding the decline in church attendance in Europe through the years, he notes, that tells us that the church as a whole has failed to reinterpret the story and message to remain current and vital as something that speaks to our hearts, that speaks to those mysterious impulses within us, that allows us to lean into the mystery of our being. There we go again. Let's see, as far as we know, he's only been to two masses in his life, but he'll now presume to tell us what church services are doing right and wrong. Church leaders have also obviously noted a decline in church attendance and have studied this for decades, with many factors explaining the decline. Making no reference to any such research, Anya's solution is to, quote, reinterpret the Christian message, making it more about, quote, the mystery of our being, not God. That would indeed be a reinterpretation maybe even a new religion. Reflecting on the meaning of Jesus's experience of transfiguration, Arya notes, quoting him from page 119 and 120, if we believe that it only has to do with Jesus and not with us, if we believe that he's the one and only God-man, then we misread the entire story. For 2,000 years, this story, the gospel, has in large part been misread. When the early church decided in 325 to establish the articles of Christian faith in the Nicene Creed, Jesus became the only begotten son. Less than 300 years after the death of Jesus, the church fathers separated Jesus' reality from you and me, 
they said, only Jesus is the God-man. Only Jesus is a combination of divinity and humanity. The most that we can do is to have the right relationship with him. At that moment, the church itself cut humanity off from entry into its own transcendent being. <sighs> First of all, Christians believed Jesus was the only begotten son long before the Council of Nicaea in 325. For example, there's the famous quote in John 3.16, written sometime before the end of the first century A.D. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the New King James Version. Other versions say it very similarly. As we noted earlier in this critique, Anya gave this passage a mythical non-dual spin. For him, it means we were sent by God to this life as Jesus was, that we incarnated ourselves via our own divine nature. Another affirmation of Jesus's exclusive sonship is expressed in the old Roman symbol, which later became the Apostles' Creed. This is from the second century, early second century. It was a common profession of faith prayed during liturgy and before baptisms, and it was used in catechesis or training and teaching those who were coming into the faith. And it begins, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, on the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. The Nicene Creed in 325 elaborated on some of these points. And there are many other creeds as well. There are ways of helping to summarize key points of the Christian faith. Numerous early church writings refer to the sonship of Jesus as special to him alone, rather than as paradigmatic to us all. Adyashanti has a problem with this core Christian belief, but it's clearly his problem not the fault of any misinterpretation or misunderstanding of what Jesus or the early church taught. In the quote we just read from him from pages 119 and 120 of his book, he states that the 325 A.D. Nicene formulation about Jesus as the only begotten Son somehow, quote, cut humanity off from entry into its own transcendent being. Whatever he might mean by this isn't stated, but it seems he cannot imagine any possibility of union or connection between humans and the divine unless humans also have a divine nature. It's as though he's saying, how can we know and experience God unless we're also divine? Christianity's answer is that, well, first of all, God could speak to us in many ways through our conscience, through revealed scripture, etc., but that in Jesus Christ, God connects with us, and we connect with God through Jesus's sacred humanity. That's the common medium. It is the human nature of Jesus that we hold in common with God, rather than some supposed divine nature that we and God possess. I'm going to read that sentence again. It is the human nature of Jesus that we hold in common with God, rather than some supposed divine nature that we and God possess. And remember, in Christianity, we believe Jesus is risen and ascended. A human being exists in the Godhead. We still connect with God through the sacred humanity of Jesus. And that's why Jesus, the God-man, is central in Christianity. The Christian mystics whom Adia claims to have read go into great detail concerning how to grow in this Christic connection through faith, prayer, studies, sacraments, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Apparently, this kind of good news is judged as inadequate or perhaps dualistic. Indeed, it seems he can't comprehend how the distinction between God and creatures, including humans, taught in Christianity, can be understood in any other way except affirming, quote, separation, which is like the most horrible thing ever in his mind. His ignorance of Christian teaching on creatures' natural union with God is not the fault of the church, however. That's entirely on him. He hasn't done his homework. After reading this book, I was left with the impression that Adyashanti is theologically clueless, which is why he recognizes no connection between theology and experience. He also seems to have no appreciation for the liberating value of religious truths as those expressed in doctrines and the manner in which such teaching informs our perspective on many kinds of topics, including faith, moral living, relationships, and meaning. Religious truth is like the proverbial finger pointing to the divine moon, but it's more. It is a manner in which our intellectual consciousness itself participates in divine life, giving rise to spiritual gifts like wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. See the book of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 3 for a listing of those gifts. These are all obviously great values in themselves. While it's true that some focus on doctrines to the exclusion of spirituality. It's also strawmanishly fallacious to take the position that people who care about sound teaching and doctrine are only in their heads. Many of the great theologians in Christianity were also mystics. St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, Catherine of Siena, Augustine, Bernard of Clairvaux, Don Scotus, and many, many others. Just think about this. Insisting that a core teaching of a world religion is wrong because you don't really understand or agree with it might sound arrogant to some. I think it is. But I suppose that when one is considered enlightened, such a character defect is considered unlikely. Generally, what most of us would do when we come upon a significant religious agreement is recognize that such a pathway is not for us and move on. We don't say that the religion is wrong and ought to reinterpret and reformulate its doctrines to suit us. At least that's how I see it. Anything else seems disrespectful. What do you think? A few closing remarks. Christianity has lived out through the centuries has been imperfect, but it's far from being a failed religion, which seems to be implied all through this book. It's the largest of the world religions, with almost 2.4 billion members of one church or another. The Roman Catholic Church is the largest Christian group with over 1.3 billion members. There's no knowing what the experiences of all these Christians are like, of course. But it's reasonable to think that hundreds of millions of people around the world experience meaning from their Christian faith and membership in a community. That matters. Christian faith gives people a sense of meaning in their lives. It's also worth pointing out that Christian institutions are directly responsible for innumerable outreaches in the arena of education, healthcare, and poverty relief. According to Wikipedia, the Roman Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental provider of healthcare services in the world, with 5,500 hospitals, 18,000 clinics, 16,000 homes for the elderly and those with special needs. 65% of these outreaches are located in developing countries. By their fruits shall you know them, Jesus said concerning his followers in Matthew 7, 16. Christianity has a lot of good fruit to show as evidence of its contact with God's loving experiences. Mystical experience seems to be the primary concern of Adyashanti and many New Age teachers. Christianity values this as well. But the wisdom of the ages has also demonstrated that there are countless men and women in every religion who are good and loving, but who do not seem to be mystical types. 
most Christians I know, including my spiritual directees, are not mystics, but many are in touch with that same loving spirit that Adia came to know through St. Therese's writings. The life of God is indeed communicated to us through deep interior silence, but also through other people, creation, culture, Bible study, prayer, service, art, and countless other ways. People with an active life and spirituality are very much in touch with God, as experienced by the fruits of the Spirit in their lives. Adia seems either unaware or uninterested in this more active manifestation of Christian spirituality. It's all about mystical awakening to him. All throughout Christianity, Jesus Christ is revered as the only begotten Son of God. Christians look to Jesus not only for guidance in living, but for ongoing spiritual empowerment. We believe he is risen and ascended, still present to us, for, quote, Jesus Christ is the same today and yesterday and forever. Book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8. We pray to him as our Lord and spiritual master and come to know him as our friend. I don't know that there are many people in all of Christianity who believe, as Adia teaches, that they are really divine as Jesus was divine. If they were to hold and promote such a belief, they would not really be Christians but heretics, for they would be blaspheming one of our most basic core beliefs. It goes without saying that Adya Shanti is not really a Christian, and what he teaches is not Christian either. It's a kind of muddle of New Age Vedanta light spirituality, I guess. I don't know. One of the most serious problems with resurrecting Jesus is that there's absolutely nothing in it to encourage a relational connection to Jesus. No mention of how Jesus has dealt with sin and evil. Mostly criticism of Christian liturgies and institutional ministry. No encouragement for anyone to join a church. Heck, I doubt if anybody would even be moved to believe and pray in God, pray to God after reading this. Such would be dualistic. You'd be acting as though you're not God. Adia seems to have no prayer life of this kind. Jesus did, however, and he is the model for Christians. The Christian church is referred to in Scripture as the Bride of Christ. It is also a kind of living mode of Christ's presence. The ascended Jesus told Saul that persecution of the church was persecuting him. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verse 4. And there's no doubt that this catalyzed Paul's theology of the mystical body of Christ. The idea of being a Christian without being part of a church makes no sense. But don't expect this book to nudge you in that direction. Quite the contrary. A few final comments concern Cynthia Bourgeau's affirming foreword. She's a Christian minister and popular author and speaker on themes, especially related to Christian contemplative spirituality. I'm thinking her name brought some degree of credibility to Adia's book, encouraging those who like her own work to consider his. I waited to read her foreword until I'd first read the book and found there some surprising statements. She writes, Adia is not a biblical scholar nor has he spent long years in Christian schools of religion, mastering the complex jargon and precise formulations that would make him au courant in the eyes of academic Christology. Those of us who have been trained as, quote, professional scholars, exegetes, critics, and commentators would be well advised to forgive him the odd scholarly faux pas. Very generous. Yes, there are numerous misinterpretations of Scripture in this book, so many that I just finally decided to never mind and focus on the issues I've covered here. However, I don't understand why Bourgeois seemingly excuses Adia from any responsibility to learn more about Christian teachings that he will choose to strongly criticize. Anyone presuming to write a book about the meaning of Jesus' teaching ought to have a little more humility and do some study. 
I just typed divine nature of Jesus into an internet search engine, and the top results were good, good resources. His ignorant comments about the Council of Nicaea indicate that he's done very little study on this and other related topics, assuming it seems that his own enlightened opinions ought to take priority. Back to Bourgeau. He is able to see Jesus as something of the same level Jesus is operating at. End quote. Sorry, but I don't think Adyashanti is anywhere close to operating at the same spiritual level as Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus didn't teach that humans have a divine nature in the sense that Adyashanti does. Jesus proposed himself, not some supposed inner divinity we possess as our transformative connection with God. No one comes to the Father except he comes through me, Jesus said. Why blur this distinction? Back to Cynthia Bourgeau. Jesus himself is a non-dual teacher, arguably the first non-dual non teacher ever seen in the West. End quote. No, he's not. He's not a non-dual teacher in the sense that Vedanta or anything like that. So yeah, arguably. Arguably the first non-dual teacher ever seen in the West. And finally, the very concept of non-duality itself as far as Christian theology goes, can barely even be said to exist. To which I respond, that is correct, and that is a good thing. So that concludes my book report. Uh, in the written form, I have a few recommended book resources that might help to shed some light on this topic. Books about the relationship between Christianity and sin, for example, uh, that, that can be very helpful. So if you've listened to all of this, I thank you for your attention, and I hope you found it helpful. Bye now. Oh, my own website, if you're interested, is shalomplace.com. That's S-H-A-L-O-M-P-L-A-C-E.com.